If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we continue our series entitled The Unveiling as we work our way through the Revelation. Last week, we began uh, as we studied the church at Ephesus, and we talked about the backslidden church today, the beat-up church. The beat-up. You can smile if you want to. The beat-up. Have you ever felt beaten up in your life? You know, my observation today is that we live in a very violent society. Uh, you don't have to do anything but watch the news for a little bit, and you'll find someone either forcibly raped, you'll find uh, uh, armed robbery, you'll find assault, and you'll find murder quite regularly on our news. Read the newspaper. It's the same thing. And, you know, I'm not sure what came first, the chicken or the egg, but it seems to me that in America, this is an opinion, it seems to me that in America that we have raised violence to the level of entertainment. Used to, you'd watch boxing. I never was a big boxing fan. I know we have some here, and that's fine. It's good. But boxing has seemed to be replaced because it wasn't violent enough by things like WWF, by tough man, by um, cage fighting. Uh, and, the, and the big thing about what we are, our kids and our generations are watching and what we are giving our attention to all has to do with violence, brutality, blood, if you will. In fact, you look at some of the video games and how graphic they are. You shoot somebody and you see them bleed. I dare say that most of us don't see beating up, being beaten up and bloodied as entertaining. The church at Smyrna is a church that could be described from a human standpoint, a church that had been beaten on a little bit, had been bloodied a little bit. And yet, and yet it's, a, it's, a, it's a church that Jesus looked at them and he looked to the very heart of who they were and what they did. So if you will, to honor the reading of God's word, let's stand as we read verses 8 through 11, chapter 2 of Revelation. 8 through 11, chapter 2, Revelation. Listen intently, for this is indeed the word of our Lord. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. Let's pray together. Father, take your word today and so empower it that we cannot escape it. My prayer is that you will take me out of the equation. I pray that you'll allow me to decrease, that you might increase. I pray for the heart that's grown cold, and I pray that today will be a time of renewal. I pray for the heart that's dead, that's never been brought to life by your spirit. I pray that today we'll see a resurrection. I pray for those who have been beat on because of their faith. I pray that you will be their constant and present help in time of trouble. In your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
The church at Smyrna was a very unique church, but most local churches are. There are some unique things that happen in and through and around that church. And here's what I want to say to you. Jesus knows the uniqueness of every believer and every church. And Jesus doesn't just make a one-size-fit-all message. That's why we have seven letters. He speaks to the very heart of the issue. Now, if you, if you just take a, a second to get some context about the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was in a town that was a very booming, bustling town. They were very affluent. Michael, from a, a community development standpoint, they had been very well planned. They, 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 they knew what they wanted. They went after it. The, the economy was booming. The, the uh, um, people were affluent. Their jobs abounded. And militarily, they had never been on the wrong side of a, of a battle. They always came out well. That said, the community was doing so well, and the church wasn't. In fact, when I think of Smyrna... And I think of the United States of America when I think of the state of Alabama. And even when I think of the town of Hueytown, I think we find some great similarities. You see, the truth is, while most people in this country, like in Smyrna, while most people have plenty, there's no time or there's little time to give to the Father. Christ, His church, and His call seem to fall on deaf ears. In fact, you could say that as long as His call doesn't interfere with my own agenda, that's fine. As long as the church doesn't ask me for too much and just gives me what I need, I'm fine. And as long as Jesus doesn't call me to change my life, my attitude, and my influence, as long as He don't call me to change, everything is all right with me. That was the attitude in Smyrna. Does that sound anything like America today to anybody but me? But I want to say this to you. Status quo is never okay with Jesus. He calls you and He calls me to be on change every day. May I just say this to you? I'm reading a great book, Transformational Church. And one of the things the guy's saying that is that you don't have to like change. You don't even have to want change. You have nothing to do, sit still for 15 minutes and change will come to you. Because change is happening. And it's a matter of whether we will embrace it or whether we will resist it. And in Jesus, change happens a lot. Here's a church that's been beat up. But you know the wonderful thing about this? Do you remember last week? We talked about the church at Ephesus. They were a ministry magnet. They were the master of ministry. He said, I know your works and I know your labors and I know all the good things you do. But you know what? I have something against you. Next week as we get to the church at Pergamum, he's going to say, you know, I know a lot of the things you do, but I don't just have one thing against you. I have many things against you. In two weeks, as we get as we get to Thy Tower, he's going to say, I know you're trying to be faithful. I know you're trying to stand up, but I have something against you. But to the church at Smyrna, the one who had been beat up by their, by their culture, he doesn't say that I have anything against you. It is just one. It is just one church that he tells that he, that he doesn't have anything against. Now, I wonder why that is. Maybe we'll get to that in a second. 
It is obvious to this preacher that as I read this, he is writing to the church. He's not particularly, I'm about to get in trouble, he's not particularly writing to the congregation or the crowd. He's writing to the church. The people who are completely his, the completely who have trusted him with their heart and their lives and their schedules and their money and their, and their priorities, they had given it all to him. And they refused, listen, they refused to cave into the pressure of the culture. Truth is, as, we, as the old preacher used to say years ago, they had a bad case of Jesus and there was no cure. A lot of times we get a bad case of Jesus and we get saved and we, pretty soon we get cured of it. So I want to just walk you through this church and let's see how much applies to us. We begin where we began last week with the church at Ephesus. Let's look at his commendation. Let's look at his commendation. You can write it down. It may not make it up there. For those who are, I'll just pause to say for those who are wondering what's going on. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had problems with this. Today we have a problem with that, so we'll figure it out. You just be patient. Keep your mind focused on Jesus and not on the technology. Oh, amen? amen? Amen. All right. His commendation. You know, I have had the privilege, and it was a, a distinct privilege, to serve in multiple churches in military communities. I'm on record that I love the military communities. Some of the finest people you'll ever meet are those who have given their lives to serve our nation. There have been many times that I've been asked to go to a ceremony where one of our soldiers, airmen, service people were receiving a commendation. And you know what I've discovered about commendations? They are never given lightly. They are vetted. And they are vetted severely in the military. And what, the, what, what is said in the wording is thought through very carefully. When Jesus gives the, the, the commendation to the church at Smyrna, I believe he thought it through very carefully. And it begins with this. The same thing it began with last week and it'll begin for the next six or seven weeks. He says, I know. I know. Now, what does he say I know about this church? He says three things. First of all, he says, I know the pressure. I know the pressure you live under. If you look in verse 9, you see he says, I know your, and there's the word, tribulation, the Greek word, I could try to say it for you, but it wouldn't bless you and you wouldn't be any more spiritual. The Greek word literally means intense pressure. And the picture of that is a man being under a stone, a, a large boulder. And, and if he, that boulder is not removed, pretty soon the life will be taken from his body by the pressure. Kind of like an avalanche, a person's out on a mountain. Stones begin to fall. The, this big boulder falls on him, and it doesn't kill him immediately, but he knows that if somebody doesn't come and help him get that boulder off, his life is going to be taken from him. It also reminds me of a man I knew 30 years ago. His name happened to be Jerry. Big man, big chest, much of a man. Now, unlike me, okay? I don't have the big chest, and I'm not much of a man. He was much of a man. I always did things around his house and everything. After we had left the church where, where they were lived and attended, we got word he'd been killed. Here's the story. He was working under his car in his garage like he did a hundred times while we were there. And the car fell on him. He was such a man that it didn't kill him immediately. 
And if somebody had, if he had not been alone, if somebody had been close to him, they could have jacked it back up and probably saved his life because the word we were given is that he struggled for a while and pretty soon had to succumb to the pressure on him. That's the pressure. I know your tribulation. He says, I know this intense pressure that you live under. I dare say that everybody in this room has some kind of pressure on their life. I don't know where it comes from. It could come from your job. It could come from your family. It could come from relationships. It could come from school. It could come from a myriad of places. But the reason that the church at Smyrna was experiencing this type of pressure and tribulation was none other than they trusted Christ as their Savior and they lived out Christ in their life every day and the world didn't and the world doesn't like it. He says, man, I, I know the tribulation that you have. I know the, the struggle that you're under. You know, the, the truth is, is that if you live out your faith, you know, I want to start that sentence over. The truth is, is that we have been sold a bill of goods in the 21st century church. This easy believism. Turn your TV on, you'll see it. You just trust Christ and all your problems are over. I've been trusting Christ for a while. And I will tell you, you don't get popular when you live for Christ. You get ostracized. You paint, paint a target on your back because someone's always after you if you do your best to live for Christ. But here's what I will say to you. Christ is always watching over you, looking out after you. Even when the pressures get so much that you feel like you're going to fold. He says, I know the pressure you have under you. The second thing he says to these folks, he says, I know the poverty. Not only do I know the pressure that you live under, but I know the, the poverty you live in. Now, there are two words in the Greek language for poverty. One means, as I read this, I couldn't help but, but giggle. One means that you have to work hard and you work from payday to payday. Work from payday to payday. Now, if I were to ask in this room, how many of you feel like you live in poverty under that definition? Everybody would raise your hand. And yet, we are some of the richest people in the world. But that's the first word. The second word for poverty literally means abject poverty. It means, uh, uh, it means poor times three. It means that you, that you literally cannot, that you cannot make it. Now, watch how this works together. These guys were living under pressure because of their faith, because they lived out their faith, because they make Jesus priority in their life. And now they were living in poverty. Well, how does that work? Well, watch this. In the town of Smyrna that was doing so well, they were what we would call in the 21st century labor unions, what they called back then trade guilds. Okay? If you were going to work in Smyrna, you had to be a member of a trade guild. But if you wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, they wouldn't admit you to the trade guild. And so if they don't admit you to the trade guild, you don't work. If you don't work, you go into poverty, abject poverty, and you are receiving pressure to get into the trade guild and to compromise your beliefs. The truth is, we used to sing this song, It pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. But in Smyrna, it didn't pay to serve Jesus. 
In fact, in fact, the truth is, Paul writes a word in 2 Corinthians, and he says, As grieving, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet enriching many. And as having nothing, i.e. poverty, possessing everything. To the human eye, to the human eye, they were living under pressure and in poverty. And Jesus says, well, how do I commend you? Because I know that you're living under pressure and in poverty. But there's one more thing here that we need to take to heart in the 21st century. He says, not only do I know the pressure you live under, not only do I know the poverty you live in, but number three, he says, I know the perversion that you live with. Brother Jerry, what in the world are you talking about? But if you look in the second part of verse 9, it says, I know the slander. Some translations say, I know the blasphemies of those who say they are Jews and are not. Those who say they are believers but are not. I remember the words of Paul. It says, he who is a Jew is not one externally, i.e. circumcision, but internally, circumcision of the heart. This tells us, when he says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, tells us pretty clearly that even in the church of Smyrna, that there were people who had come in to join in the church and they were wolf, they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. They came in to compromise belief. They come in to control what was going on. They were trying to make the church more culturally acceptable. They tried to, to make the church more culturally compliant. They claimed to be one thing, and they were not. And we can develop this on and on and on. Barclay talks about there even being some problems at the Lord's Supper. But here's what I will say to us. They were living in a church body where the congregation was much bigger than the church. And the pressure was coming, not only from the outside, not only personally, coming from inside. And what did the Lord say? He said, I know. I know what's going on. I've got my eyes on it. Those eyes of fire, he sees everything. Now, with him seeing everything, with him commending this church for all these things they were going through because of him, wouldn't you think that he'd say, okay, guys, I see all of this. I recognize this. I know what's going on. I'll take care of it. Is that what you expect Jesus to say? But that's not what he says. Look second at his caution. His caution. Watch this. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. In fact, you think it's bad now? You just hang on. It's going to get worse. Now, why didn't he just come in and take care of it? Well, folks, may I just say this to you? We get to heaven. That might be a question we want to put to Jesus. Why didn't he just take care of it? Why didn't he just, just do away with it? And could it be that there's an extended message when he says, look, and don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Could it be that there's an extended message for the church in America today? Till now, the church has almost had a free ride. Our forefathers founded this nation on Judeo-Christian principles. If you want to be more specific, they founded them on this book. 
And for those who sit out here and go, Brother Jerry, you keep saying that, and I read this history and it doesn't say that, well, that's the revised history. If you want some history to read, you go to Washington, D.C., and you see what is inscribed in stone in almost every public building up there. It is always God's Word. And yet today, and yet today, we find ourselves abrupt of a society that's casting God and the Bible and God's people to the side. That said, I wonder if we're the culprits. When we look at this text, there are so many things. He says, look, uh, um, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison to test you. Have you ever thought about anything besides the physical prisons that we build? How about the prison of sitting in your office and you having Jesus in your heart, knowing that Jesus can help us? A person who is maybe is a fellow worker. And because of the attitude of your employer and because of the environment of the workplace, you have trouble being able to share a word of witness with that person sitting next to you whom you'd really like to help. Have you ever thought about that being a prison? How about the prison of, of your religious and your moral freedom being taken away. How about for the first time in history, the church is being told what to believe? Have you ever heard of such? Not in America, but get ready for it. The day is now when people expect the church to overlook sin, particularly sin, particularly sexual sin. We're, not, we're told uh, you cannot preach against fornication because everybody can't control themselves. Listen, when I was a kid, we didn't really have to control ourselves. Our dads controlled. Never mind. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? I will say this to our teenagers. If you'll, if you'll wait, it'll be worth it. If you'll wait, it'll be worth it. You see, God didn't tell us to abstain from sexual sin, that fornication, sex between two unmarried people. He didn't tell us to do that to make us unhappy. He told us that because when we come together in that one flesh, it's when we imprint ourselves on that one person. And every time that we sleep with someone else, we leave a little bit of ourselves there. You see, God knows what's best for us. But you see, we're not supposed to preach against fornication. We're not supposed to preach against uh, uh, adultery. We're not supposed to preach against homosexuality. We're not supposed to even preach against incest because it is case sirrah, whatever will be, will be. And today, God's Word is being challenged and the pressure is mounting to change His Word. Here's a caution. Do you remember back in June when the Southern Baptist Convention met in Phoenix, Arizona? For the first time in history, the uh, uh, homosexual agenda, the homosexual leaders met with Southern Baptist Convention to get an apology for our doctrine. All I want to say, we love, somebody said to me this week, you love the sinner and you hate the sin. Why is that so difficult for this country to buy into? You help and make a better life through Jesus. I can't change what the Bible says, can you? And yet today, that is what is trying to be done, trying to do in in our culture is to change God's word. Here's your call. Here's your caution, folks. You be ready. You be ready. Because your faith is about to be tested like it's never been tested. If all you got is sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, you're not going to stand. 
If all you have is coming to Sunday school once a week, you're not going to stand. If all you have is your place on a committee or your place behind a pulpit, you're not going to stand because when the pressure comes, you're going to run like crazy. I think I told you this story. You'll pardon my senility, but I'll tell it again. A church of a couple of thousand gathered one Sunday morning in America to worship. Five masked men walked in with guns, automatic weapons. Walked down front, stood at the front, and said, uh, uh, everybody that really will trust Christ, you just stay. We'll give everybody else a chance to get out. All of them left except for just a couple of hundred. And when the, when the place had cleared out, the man pulled off his mask and he turned to the preacher. He said, now let's worship God. All the false people are gone. And that bleeds into, and that bleeds into what Jesus says to this church next. He says, you know, it's bad. It's going to get worse. But here is his call. Here is his call. It is a call that reaches all of us. It's a call that we read very easy. But it is a call that's tailor-made for me. It's a call that's tailor-made for you. It's a call that's tailor-made to the church. It's bound up in four words in this verse. Here's the call for you today. Be faithful till death. Be faithful till death. Be faithful till death. Brothers and sisters... We will never be faithful till death until we're faithful in life. The same Jesus who spoke these words saying, be faithful to death. It's the same Jesus that begins with each of us and his words. Let's think about some of his words. He said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said before that, he said, except you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus said again, he who starts down the road and puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. He who loves his mother and father more than me is not fit for the kingdom of God. He is the one that said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man. I, you and I, we are all rich in this room. We don't believe it, but, but if you go outside of this country and you see the poverty that's lived in, you will know. Bob Blake said last night as we finished a long rehearsal for tomorrow night, he said to the choir, he said, would y'all pray for me? I'll leave next week. And so I'm going to ask the whole church, Bob, pray for Bob. You know, he travels with the network. And he said, this trip just got me a little uneasy. He's going to Spain. All you have to do is step out of this country where we live in the land of plenty, and you'll find out that you are rich, whether you live from payday to payday or whether you have thousands of dollars in the bank. The truth is, you are are 
rich. And Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his call begins right there. It is not a matter of joining a church. It is not just a matter of walking through and getting your body washed in a baptism. It is not about joining a Sunday school class. It is not about just picking up your Bible to read a few words every day. It is about knowing Jesus personally every day. Every step you take, every word you speak. And it begins by calling on the name of the Lord to save you. That's His call. You'll never, you'll never be faithful till death if you're not faithful to life. And, and the only way you get life is that you die to self that He can get you life. Except a seed fall to the ground and die. When you think of the church at Smyrna, this being faithful to death would come to be a very personal message to them. Because you see, their pastor, a man named Polycarp, was called out by the soldiers and said, Okay, Polycarp, for all your preaching, you have to say, Caesar is Lord. Just say it. Caesar is Lord. Now, you know what our modern day reasoning tells us? Those three words won't mean anything. Just say them and you get to live. That's our modern day reasoning. You know what Polycarp said? Eighty and six years I have served Christ. And he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? Who saved me? And the soldiers responded by tying him to a stake, by gathering bush, by lighting a fire, and burning him to death. Be faithful until death. We say that we'll be faithful to death when, in fact, the first time those who claim to be Jews, believers that are not, the first time they raise their head, we, we run like scared rabbits. Be faithful to death. And many times we're too fearful to stand for Christ. Hear his call today. Be faithful to death. Let it begin with Christ in your heart. If you've never invited him into your heart, let today be the time you do. When you invite him into your heart, you know what you'll find? I had a young man to sit with me this week and talk about all that God was doing in his life. Just excited. And I can see it. How God works in his life. His priority, his schedule. Is God working in your life like that? Are you being faithful in life? Well, you will never be faithful in death. 
with all these words that Jesus has given to this beat up, bloody church. He always ends with a word that helps. And, and, and as I look, as I look at this text, he has surrounded it and implanted this good word. And it's called, what I'm calling it is his confirmation. His confirmation that I'm with you, that I will never leave you, that I will never forsake you, no matter, no matter what happens. Now, folks, we could plant right here and we could take this message on another hour, but please listen. Please listen. There are a number of things here he says to us. He said, for those who are facing death because of their belief, look in verse, the second part of verse 8. Here's how he identifies himself. The first and the last. The one who was dead and came to life. You know what he says? No matter what you're facing, I'm in control. No, what you're fa- no matter what you're facing, I've been there. And since I've been there bef- and I've done that, you don't have to worry anymore because I am in control. Then he says, then he says, and if you are faithful unto death, if you will trust me as the first and the last, the one who's dead and alive, watch this. I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life. It is, it is the crown. It is the crown where he will coronate you. It is the crown of a winner. When you give Jesus your life, life is what Christ offers. And he gives you this crown. And then he doesn't even stop there. Did you, are you getting all these things? We have a, we're just running over this quickly because of time. He's the first and the last, the one dead and alive. He says, he says, I'll give you the crown of life. And then he says in verse, in the verse 11, the victor. He makes you a victor. Anybody in this room like to be a winner, a victor? Got a lot of reprobates today because you wait when Alabama and Auburn all kick off. You'll want to be winners. Sometimes I think we're more concerned about our football team winning than the family of God winning. But if we'll be faithful unto death, we'll be victor. That's what he says. And the best part, the victor, the one who receives the crown of life, the one who knows the first and the last, the one who is dead and alive, that one, he'll never be harmed by the second death. Do you see that? He don't have to worry about the lake of fire. Now, I've given you all those things kind of in bullet point very quickly. But there is hidden in this verse the greatest part of this whole message. And if you go to sleep right now, you're going to miss it. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But watch this. Yet you are rich. Old song, how rich I am since Jesus came to me. Redeem my soul. Boy, how very rich I am. You see, we have lost the concept that when we give all we have, God gives us all he has. And I got news for you. You don't, I don't know who the richest person in this room is, but whoever it is, you don't have. You do not have anything close to what he has. Years ago, there was a movie. I don't recommend movies, so I'm not going to recommend this movie. Where a man received an inheritance of $30 million. But he had strings attached. 
he had to unload this $30 million in 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, he could have nothing to show for it. Couldn't have one asset. If he had an asset, he would lose the real inheritance, which was $300 million. Now, some of us would say, oh, why don't we just settle for the $30 million? That would set me for life. And then you miss out on all the wonders that God has. I dare say, for this beat-up church, they weren't interested in the little bit. They were interested in a father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I want to give you a secret. The Bible says our father owns cattle on a thousand hills, but if you don't know this secret, listen. He owns the thousand hills. And what he calls us to do today is to respond to him. He calls us to give our hearts to him, to have our hearts cleansed by him, that we can walk every day with him, that we can be faithful until death. Let's pray together.